So when I when I say things that don't die, I mean things that enter the world and are not going anywhere. I mean the Brandenburg Concerto. I mean oh, okay. Plato's Republic. Okay. I, see. I mean these things that that enter into enter into time and space and take on a kind of mind and life of their own. Hello and welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? Rabbits are the things that jump around on the internet. They seem to have meaning and they seem to definitely reproduce. But a lot of times they just run off into the dark called a rabbit hole. But we don't talk about those things. Well, what we do is we talk about them in a way that allows us to grow. That's what we hope. We do it using this new world, old world construction. The idea that the Enlightenment, well, it's sort of changed history. We try to figure out how and why and what kind of people we are, given the old world lessons that we share. Today, we simply ask Joshua Gibbs, a writer, a teacher, a philosopher, and a philosopher of the classics, we ask him, what is the Enlightenment? And he gives us one hell of a great answer. That's what I think, anyway. So, Joshua Gibbs today, an author of an upcoming book, Love What Lasts, author of a book that you should go and get right now that's already out, How to Be Unlucky, Something They Will Not Forget, a classical teacher at the Circe Institute, and more than anything, I think, a purveyor of things wise. He has his own podcast called Proverbial. Check it out. But for right now, take a listen. Joshua Gibbs. On Watar. Hello. All right, guys, we're getting started. And this is Joshua Gibbs. How do you prefer for me to re- refer to you? You know, most of my friends call me Josh. Okay. Which is which is great. I'll do that. Let me unbutton this yeah. a little bit. I don't look so hyped. Uh okay, Josh. I'll do Josh. Right. And um here we go. Let's just do it. So, Josh, you know, you I know that you kind of have been told what a rabbit is when it yeah. comes to why are we talking about rabbits uh you know something that they're like they're jumping around on the internet there are all these ideas that get you know five seconds of fame and then they run down a rabbit hole i like these ideas that percolate you know like kanye doing something crazy because i think there's something always a little deeper in them and so you've come in on the show to say why are we talking about rabbits Here's a big rabbit, okay? History education sounds boring, but it's all over the internet. Have you noticed people love, they love the idea that they learned a little piece of history and then they apply it. In some ways, that's what we're doing on this show. And I want to ask you in terms of history education, because I know that you're a writer and a teacher of these kind of things. Yeah. If I say to you enlightenment, Mm -hmm. From your point of expertise as a historian and a teacher and a writer, what do you want, say, a student or an inquiring mind to know about the Enlightenment? A couple big things come first to mind. Uh, one of the first things I want people to know about the Enlightenment is that it's not a movement entirely sponsored by atheists who hate religion. It's a bit more complex than that. Um, when I think of the Enlightenment, I think of a, a secularist movement, which is not the same thing as an atheist movement. And the uh, first thing that comes to mind when I think of the Enlightenment is 
a move to push religion to the margins of society. Hmm. And this is not a move uh, prompted by people who hate religion, but people who have come to believe that religion is more trouble than it's worth. And so the Enlightenment wants religion to be the sort of thing that people practice in their homes and in their churches, but which they leave out of the public square. They want this new lease on the public square. Hmm. And they want a public square that is governed by reason, logic, science, mathematics, but a public square where uh, religious dogma and religious aesthetics and ideas uh, are, are gone because religion causes division and causes argument. Um, 10 Christians have 11 ideas on what a certain passage from scripture means. Right. Religion is no longer this universal foundation upon which to build society. We need a new foundation. Following the Reformation, we need this new foundation for society. We need something that cuts across denominational differences, religious differences. And that thing that's going to cut across religious differences is logic and reason. So I think a lot of this podcast, I'm doing negative characterizations of Enlightenment thinkers, probably yeah. most of the time. Yeah. Um, it doesn't sound like you would do that most of the time. No, Are absolutely, you, I would. I you totally would embrace would. a lot of it. I I think that the Enlightenment is um, understandable in its historical context, but it simply has not panned out well for us. I think that the Enlightenment has ultimately devalued the place of religion in our lives, so that religion doesn't really matter at all. And there may be a been there may have been, and there was this sort of unfortunate point in history where people were drawing battle lines along denominational lines. But I don't believe that the solution to that problem is to move religion to the margins of society. Hmm. Okay, so let me let me do something with you. So we do this old world, new world divide. We, we say something like on this podcast, hey, if you want to learn about history, we can tell you about it from our experiences in what amounts to sort of like old world places at first things like, we work in the Georgian Republic. It's pretty old school. I can tell you why. Mozambique, West Africa, Guatemala, the Mayans. And there's all these lessons to be learned. And so what I've come to do is gripe about the lessons that are at the core of the Enlightenment. And here's why. And this is push me back, though. Because fundamentally, there's this profound hubris because there's a misunderstanding in my mind by those guys, Thomas Paine, or you pick them, we can, we can name them, but we don't have to yeah. as a, as a conglomerate, there's a group of people that the hubris to move quote religion out. There's like such profound hubris that it almost taints the movement to such an extent that I can't take it seriously. And just to add to that, what I mean is, is there's almost a redefining I would almost call it like a, they're trying to represent, to bring back that which the Greeks thought, that somehow the mind is the God. And if we stay close to it, we can see reality really closely. But the problem yeah. is, and this is my big beef, is that, of course, is nonsensical because the mind in and of itself can't find itself as it falls through a darkened cosmos. It 
doesn't know itself. It can't know itself outside of its relationship to a creator. What do you think about all that? I think that's true. I think, I think that after, you know, six or seven generations of what many people think of as religious violence, the belief that religion has become more trouble than it's worth is understandable. However, I don't think justifiable. Like, I understand it. Like, if I was watching a movie about it, I would understand why the characters were behaving in the way that they were, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Especially when conversions are taking place on a massive scale. Uh, You live in some German town, and you you wake up on a Thursday morning to find out that your whole region has converted from Lutheranism to Catholicism or vice versa, and you don't really understand the difference. And a year later, you're going to go kill somebody for being the thing that you used to be. I understand why people are fed up with that. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the Enlightenment promise is this world which is free from struggle, free from violence. If we can all just lay down our religious differences, we can work together, we can solve the problem of hunger, poverty, war, disease, etc., well, the, the 20th century is a long litany of ways that that promise failed, mm. right? It's not as though as soon as we set religion aside, everything got better. There are certain things that improve, of course. There are improvements that are made to medicine, but those those improvements also have a heavy price that comes with them. Yeah. Um, the, the viewing of the body as a kind of purely mechanical thing is capable of producing medicines and technologies that will keep bodies alive for longer, but it devalues the meaning of life at the same time. So this, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch, and all the improvements to medical technology that the Enlightenment make come come with a very heavy price. And the Enlightenment promise of you know controlling nature, controlling mother nature, human nature, creating this world where there's no more poverty, war, disease, etc. I mean, the First World War more or less shatters all of that. And the, and the long haul of the 20th century has proven that all of these Enlightenment promises sounded great in theory, but in practice, they just would not work out. So historically, yeah, do you think, and for guys out there listening, you probably may know this history, but I'm going to make a connection. And then you tell me, Josh, if you think it's true. In the same way that the Hundred Years' War, the Thirty Years' War, the wars that between Protestants, Catholics, and then Protestants, Protestants, these wars. In the same way, you're like, man, I'd bail on, quote, religion, too. Is that what World War II is for the Enlightenment? Is World War II like, well, (laughs) so... We've gotten to a point now where the science mind has failed us. And is would you argue that's why we're now in something like a postmodern reality? Um, I think that the First World War gets things started and everything after. I wouldn't say that it's the Second World War um, that puts the nail in the coffin. I, I really think it's the First World War. People have believed, at the, at the time of the First World War, people have believed for 200 years that machines and technology are going to make life better. And then machines and technology are ending life on a grander scale than it's ever been seen before. Like if you were to tell, you know, somebody in 18th century France that technology was ultimately going to build up to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they'd say, no, that's not how technology works. Technology makes life better. 
And that's a that's a very bold assertion, which historic history has simply hasn't borne out over the last two hundred years. Um, I I think that a lot of the Enlightenment promises are it's easy to understand why people bought into them. They yeah, sounded no, I so agree. good, like they sound so appealing, and there's a kind of spacious reasoning to them, which kind of passes the sniff test. Uh, there's also comfort in logic. That very true, very true, and 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 if and if you know, you were to rewind the tapes of history back to the 18th century, early 18th century, all these promises, like there's a kind of mathematical precision to them that, that just kind of makes sense. Like the reason why Jews and Muslims and Christians can't get along is because of religion. Jews and Muslims and Christians can all agree on the principles of fermentation. They can all agree on addition and subtraction. Right, right, what if we right. were to found society? Now, this is not my observation. This is sure. Peter Lightheart's right. Solomon right. Among the Postmoderns. He makes this comment. That's one of my favorite history books uh, to teach and to read. Reread it many times. He's an old friend of mine. He says uh, Protestants and, or excuse me, Lutherans and Catholics cannot agree on what happens to the bread and the wine in the in the Lord's Supper, but they can both agree on the principles of fermentation, the principles by which the bread and the wine are created. So, what if we were to create the society that's based on things that we can agree on, as opposed to things that we argue about? And as soon as you hear that, like even when I'm presenting the promises of the Enlightenment to my students in class, they're all nodding. They're like. Yeah, this makes all the sense in oh, the world. <laughs> oh, it's crazy. I had the yeah. same experience with my students. In fact, I would yeah. ask the question. I've said it on this pod, I think, before. I would ask the question always at the end of the year. These are seniors graduating from high school, so 12 years or whatever, yeah. 15 yeah. years in, in whatever school they're in. Where did you find the most about, where did you find out the most about truth? Which, which classroom? Mm. Always, always, 95%. In science class, or sometimes they'd add math. They would do science or math. They would often say biology. It was never like in English. That isn't, mm. That's not where I find truth, because that's where everyone disagrees. Mm. We had so many disagreements mm. in English. Everyone was arguing over the interpretation. I find that fascinating. I think that's what you're saying, which is like there's a peace and a comfort in like, you know what, if I just learn enough, I'll find the right answer, and then we can all agree. Right. But whoa. It sounds great. Doesn't really work though. <laughs> in theory, in theory, it sounds fantastic. What do you think gets in the way of it working? Because you'll hear people apologize. Ooh, I think Jordan yeah. Peterson does some some yeah. pretty so, some pretty enlightenment style apologetics. Right. He's he's fascinating with me. He, yeah. he drives me nuts sometimes. What do you think's in yeah. the way? The, what gets in the way is the fact that contemporary people do not understand the difference between subjectivity and objectivity. They tend to think of subjectivity as a total crapshoot. They think of subjectivity as like Calvin Ball, where the rules are made up as you go along. Uh, they think that everyone agrees on what's objective and nobody agrees on what's subjective. Or they bought into this kind of quasi-enlightenment uh, idea that people don't argue about science. If you, if you watched the news during COVID, you know that people do argue about science. Oh. It's not like religion is divisive and science is universal. I mean, listen to any argument on, uh, you know, uh, trans surgeries for kids, which some people are claiming um, that this practice can be backed up with scientific reason scientific discoveries and other people are vehemently arguing um, the, the idea that science is universal and indisputable 
has been disproven just by by a casual perusal of news headlines. Yeah, that's how many times in the last decade. But people still tend to believe that any claim that purports to be objective is not disputable, or that or that science and mathematics are the disputable things, and English and history are the are the things that people argue about. But that's not really true. I don't no. think that that's true. No. The other nutty thing. And again, I think I've got you sounding like some old worlder right now who's harboring anger or something toward the new world. I, I don't. I want to go back to that because I know that's yep. not you. Uh, it may sound like me. Um, I'll just put it out there. Here's a thesis, guys, and then you can ask. You, you, Josh, tell me what you think. Here's yeah. the thesis. I actually think that in this whole conversation about new world, order, which I find super fascinating, yep. that the Enlightenment principles. Uh, which are really, I would, I would say, they're really scientific principles on some level. That those principles are fully new, but fully old is not Christianity. I would say fully old world. Really, you got to go go look at like the Babylonians or go look at yeah. really uh, fully old world. I know, like the Vikings, they're doing a lot of. Co- what I'm really arguing is that there's this thing called something like the Christian revelation. I'm going to call it Orthodox Christianity because I believe it to be that. Right. It's actually the middle way. And a lot of times I lump old world into that same category as Orthodox. But I really think, and for people who are listening, I really don't think that's the case. I think there's a third way. And very few of us practice it. What do you think of that idea? Um, I entirely agree. So um, I'm someone who... Uh, kind of happily self-identifies as a conservative, but who acknowledges that there's a lot of uh, misunderstandings of of what exactly conservatism is. Um, I've said before that conservatism is not about the restoration of a golden age. It's about the preservation of golden things. It's about keeping great things around. There was no golden age. I, I do believe that. I'm a conservative who believes there was no golden age. If there was a golden age, it would still be with us. A golden age would be capable of perpetuating itself over mm. time. If a golden age comes to an end, it was never really golden to begin with. Now, I do think that there are golden things, so to speak. I do think that there are transcendent things. What's a golden thing? A golden thing is a thing that doesn't die. A golden thing is a thing that is... Uh, that once it enters the world, it never really goes away, and which is capable of producing virtue in the people that are oh, obedient wow. to it. I like that. Dostoevsky, so, using your terminology, I think Dostoevsky would say that the golden thing, at least one of them, is the narrative of Christ or, or about it, what Christ is. Sure. Um, it, I think of that as kind of the golden thing that creates every other golden ah, thing. That's okay. kind of like the... That, that Jesus Christ, as as man and God, is this perfect union of subject and object. He's the one who restores this kind, this thing that's broken or separated in in sin, and subject and object after sin are are separated and kind of uh, distanced from each other. Um, but that the incarnation is the ultimate reunion of subject and object. The incarnation is this thing that restores meaning to the world after the world, more or less, to an extent, and I would put certain qualifications on this, 
that, that the introduction of sin in the world kind of makes it tend towards meaninglessness. Right. And all the things that are meaningful prior to Christ are those things that anticipate Christ. But that the union of object and, and subject of creator and creation in Christ is what makes anything capable of, of having meaning. Um, and I believe that that it's the incarnation, which is sort of the, well, this is sort of a crass way of putting it, but the battery that charges every lesser transcendent thing. So when I, when I say things that don't die, I mean things that enter the world and are not going anywhere. I mean the Brandenburg concertos. I mean oh, okay. Plato's Republic. Okay. I see. I mean these things that that enter into enter into time and space and take on a kind of mind and life of their own. They're not popular in their day. They're not popular because they have to be. They're not popular because and they're not read because somebody's forcing them on you. They are these things that just linger forever on some kind of power of their own. We don't have to keep the Brandenburg concertos around. We choose to keep them around. And, and we you think have to we keep choose them because in some ways they're united. They're yeah. a they're a they're a participatory with that Christian That's right. concept that you share. Truth, beauty, and goodness are rare enough that whenever we find deep expressions of them, we hold on to them with all of our might and do not let go. Inside or outside of quote the the church absolutely so this, is, this is of course is a whole big conversation but sure yeah right there's an there's um it's the word i'm looking for there's a hint there's a hint of the ultimate golden thing in other words there's sort of like a, there's silver laying all over that has all this gold-like value it has all this value in its beauty and it's a it's it's related in some ways to the gold the gold thing through being a precious metal and it's yeah. reflecting the golden thing but it's not of it necessarily it's not the same thing as that which is golden so here's a question for you do you think the enlightenment what 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 did it advance what did it participate in and produce that would you would call golden classical music yeah. There's, um, I mean, there's some works of art created in the 18th century that I think will endure the test of time. Um, I, I should say, though, that I find a lot of the works of art produced in the, you know, the so-called neoclassical period, a lot of those works that are going to survive, and this is, uh, you know, this is going to sound like cherry picking. This is going to sound like a gerrymandered argument. Um, but I think a lot of those things that last are going to last in spite of their enlightened reference points, not because of them. It's a great argument. Um, the, I like the, it. I like it. The, the enlightenment, like, like every great movement and the enlightenment is a great movement. It's a, it's a, um, it's a productive movement. It's a powerful movement. Every great movement is predicated on a rediscovery of the past. There's no great movement that accomplishes anything worth doing. This is not born out of a rediscovery of ancient Greece and Rome. And the Enlightenment is this new rediscovery of ancient Greece and Rome. And Enlightenment philosophers are rediscovering different things than, say, the Renaissance 
artists are rediscovering. Like when the, when a Renaissance artist, like when Michelangelo thinks of ancient Greece and Rome, he's thinking of something very different than like Denny Diderot is thinking of mm-hmm. when he thinks of ancient Greece and Rome. But but they're both going to claim ancient Greece and Rome as a as a kind of um, fountain from which all of their thought uh, proceeds. Um, when neoclassical thinkers or enlightened thinkers thought of Socrates, you know, they thought of somebody who was opposed to the gods. That's, that's primarily what they think of. And, that's right. and so they're kind of, you know, they're enlightenment thinkers are, you know, also kind of cherry picking ancient Greece and Rome for the things that are, you know, consonant with, with their own projects. And it's very different than what the Renaissance artists and, and intellectuals are seeking. Um, but there's, there's an awful lot in ancient Greece and Rome. <laughs> and and for anybody who's rediscovering ancient Greece and Rome, if you're trying to bring back the accomplishments and the and the and the intellectual grandeur of ancient Greece and Rome, you're gonna hit some gold whether you whether you have all of your intellectual ducks in a row or not. And and so with a painter like Jacques Louis David, um with a, even a even a fellow who I think was profoundly destructive to the Western mind, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. If you read The Social Contract, his insights into human nature are at times just dazzlingly brilliant. And I I think The Social Contract is one of the most destructive books ever written. Nonetheless, that guy's guy's research into into ancient Greece and Rome was productive, and it did fund this brilliant imagination. Well, he's Um, speaking, I mean, there's no way around it. Rousseau, guys, go check it out. He's He's speaking to the passion in you, like you, and that's yeah. in you. And so the idea that it's powerful because it's it is it's relevant. It is yeah. relevant what he's saying, Absolutely. even if it starts really three really bad revolutions. I might argue that, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. my, what what would you say to this? Because I love this one. Okay, get ready. We can get okay. canceled. Want to get canceled? <laughs> Let's get canceled. Uh, Here's two white guys, one guy wearing a baseball hat, another guy wearing that big beard, yada, yada. This is all fine. Classical Greece and Rome. The Enlightenment. These are important questions. And then as historians, and also as at least for me, living in Africa, you know, these are perspectives. What would you say about, is there a black perspective? How come they're left out of it? <laughs> What's happening in terms of race is race mm-hmm. relevant to this idea of the Enlightenment? Should we bring it in? And what about all the voices of real, cla- I would call them classical traditions, in that they're taking yeah. place during that period we call classical, yeah. say in, uh, I don't know, in in, in Mali or in, uh, say, the Bantu kingdoms of uh, Eastern Africa. Like, why are we never hearing about this? And is that racism on some level? Um, I think that... Enlightened thinkers like Rousseau and, while well, I'd put him in a different, you know, a somewhat different camp, Marx, 75 years after Rousseau. Um, while I think that these people are commonly grouped in with white enlightened thinkers, that the ramifications of Rousseau and Marx's philosophy on race relations has been disastrous. And I think the reason for that uh, has a lot to do with the Enlightenment's hatred of aristocracy as a concept. Um, 
I think that the concept of aristocracy, rightly understood, has more to offer every race and relations between races than pretty much any other idea I could think of within, a, within a purely earthly or philosophical realm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, again, I don't have any original ideas. All these ideas are borrowed uh, from two essays by a French writer for um for uh well for first things the death journal mm -hmm. right uh named remy brog he's got two remarkable essays one is called uh god is a gentleman and the other is called um sin no more and i would encourage anybody to go look up these two articles especially remy brog's article sin no more which is a, a kind of robust explanation of what the very concept of aristocracy as a government means. Um, Rousseau is one of those people who's chiefly responsible for making us turn up our nose at the idea of aristocracy. And to, and to think of aristocracy as this kind of top-heavy hierarchical view of, of social relations that oppresses some people, most people, and sort of elevates this um, asinine small group of self-important um, you know, prigs into a position of great power. Um, and, and I understand why people tend to think of aristocracy that way, but I don't think of aristocracy that way because of, um, well, because of these two articles and Remy Bronson no more is essentially this argument that aristocracy, as we understand it today is first put forward in the 10 commandments. And then an aristocracy is a form of government, which is fitting for every man that has a soul, that any, uh, any human being with a soul is an aristocrat. And that the, arist the aristocratic way of regarding the self and the self's obligations in the world um, is the essential human, the human self-conception. Um, and that, and that uh, even, um, even if you're to look at like, uh, 14th century British society where there are these rich people who inherit all of their land and all of their power. And there's these common people who are beholden to them and are doing the difficult work and paying these taxes, even that sort of government um, and that sort of social arrangement presumes that people, uh, that common people are capable of imitating aristocrats mm -hmm. because common people and aristocrats are endowed with the same spiritual potential. And um, and so uh, one of the cases that Brog makes in Sin No More is that the Ten Commandments are the law that Israel gets after they're liberated from slavery. Um, and, that, and that in uh, you know the whole of the law, Yahweh is constantly drawing this hard line between the way that you behave when you were slaves and how you behave now. And that the way that they're to behave now is not necessarily incumbent on being the liberated people it's actually based on being incarnated souls and yeah. this is and the, and the focal point of brog's claim on that front um is that rest on the sabbath is not a privilege given to israelites even the even the foreigners have to be given their day of rest if they're living with the israelites um, and the day of rest is the is the essence of the aristocratic life. The day of rest, the day of leisure, is a token of um, 
a day of leisure is a token of your spiritual value as a human being. And if even slaves are being given a day of leisure, it's sort of proof that slaves have the potential to enjoy leisure, which outside of that arrangement is going to be thought of as the, the exclusive province of people that are born with blue blood. But uh, what the Ten Commandments asserts is that everybody has the potential for leisure. Everyone needs leisure because everyone has a soul. And leisure is the thing that makes for the health of the soul. Hmm. Um, if you never have leisure, you will not have a healthy soul. Like leisure is time, which is set apart for the pursuit of spiritual things. And so is it that, so I'll speak a little bit about African history. Is it that then the traditional African political arrangement in any given time, more or less, throughout history was something like a chiefdom, something like a kingship, something like an aristocracy. Is it that we don't have respect for those time periods in history because fundamentally we our enlightened minds think like Democrats and we sort of have excused all that, that history from those parts of the world as being sort of wastelands of silly aristocracies and so we don't respect the lessons from africa or from southeast asia because right. the old world is living in that way you know they're all right. living in these hierarchical forms not all but most all the, the, the right. let me put it this way the kung or whatever are the exception that proves the rule okay so like generally before the enlightenment that's how that's how political organizations played out. That's how that's how societies right. looked. So is, that, is that the tie-in to to why we might not respect or listen to these perspectives from these other well, cultures? Yeah. If you well, I think that some of the um, some of the adjustments that the where to start here. I'm not entirely sure that the Enlightenment actually has a firm grasp on what a hierarchy is. And I think it's it's possible that there's this anachronistic view today uh, of hierarchical societies that are kind of um, not really not really adopting a middle way, but are kind of uh, attempting to uh, marry the worst part of the old world with the worst part of the new world. Um, and and what that means is a hierarchy that is entirely staked on power. Yeah, there you go. And I do I not believe that. that that a hierarchy, that traditional hierarchies are entirely staked on power. I think that the view that hierarchies are entirely power arrangements is this Marxist innovation. That's right. And that if you look back, if you look back in the ancient world, hierarchies are not about power, they're about glory materialists have no idea what to do with the concept of glory. They only think in terms of, of uh, power and they think of, uh, they think of power in this purely materialist sort of way. That's right. The power is only about getting to do what you want. And so the whole concept of authority hasn't been entirely lost. Like we've done away with the concept of authority and we've entirely replaced it with, with power. And we no longer even believe in glory. So when we look at a hierarchy, we look at a hierarchy as purely in terms of who gets to do what. We don't look at a hierarchy as being greater, as being an arrangement of greater to lesser glory, which is what anybody would have said a hierarchy was prior to Marx, prior to the modern era. But um, 
modernity and especially the enlightenment the enlightenment kind of misinterprets what a hierarchy is and then kind of codifies this misunderstanding of hierarchy so today wherever we see a hierarchy we're like well that's the problem hierarchies are problematic and hierarchies are are problematic today if you only think of hierarchies in terms of like coercive power. So but I don't think that a, a hierarchy is historically a hierarchy has been nothing but coercive power. Glory is not glory can't be reduced to mere coercive power. You're making me think of something. So I think what you just said is amazing. Is yeah, there's a miseducation about how we operate in the world just within a family. Yeah. The little child is always looking up to the father, not because there's anything wrong with that. It's because the father is up. Like yeah. the father's towering over this kid. There's That's a reality right. in that, you know, like, and so I look yes. up to become fully who I am as little. Like, I don't, right. come on, man. But so Kim Jong-un in, 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 if I'm saying his name right, in Korea, see, I, whenever I hear these classic reports, like you, you just say North Korea, then everyone goes, bum, bum, bum. I always think, is that because of this dude? Because he seems like the problem. But if he was like a good dude, would we be talking about North Korea? Like, there is a hierarchy there that is clearly headed by something not working. I'll give you that from what I can tell. Right. But why do we all go in on the whole idea that he's a dictator as if... what if he was a good one? Is always my. I always think. Okay, I get right. it. What if he was good though? Would we even be having this conversation? Is it true that we can't have a good dictator? I wonder if that's true in history. I don't think it's true. I've been taught I, that probably as a Democrat, a right. little D, little D Democrat. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and and that's because the the modern impulse is always to liquidate and redistribute. Like wherever you find great accumulations of power, glory, or money, the modern the modern impulse is to liquidate and redistribute and liquidate and redistribute is a doable tactic. I'm not saying that it's right or wrong, but liquidate and redistribute is, is possible when you're only talking about like say money. Like if you've got a hundred dollars and I've got $0 or let's say, sorry, let's say you've got a $100 painting and I have no paintings. Well, you can sell your painting for $100, and then we can split the $100 between the two of us. And so there, there's some sense in which goods can be liquidated and redistributed. You can't liquidate and redistribute glory, though, right? What's the most glorious block on a pyramid? It's the top block, right? It's the one where everyone's attention is, is focused on. You cannot liquidate and redistribute the glory of the top block on a pyramid to all the pyramids without leveling the pyramid. Wow, that's I love that. And it's, once it's you level it, right? you can never share in the glory. You Once you level it, you have no glory, right? And so the same thing is going on during the Enlightenment, especially during the French Revolution. What all of these benighted uh, revolutionaries are thinking is we're going to sack the uh, aristocrats and we're going to sack the monarchy and we're going to redistribute their glory. But you can't redistribute glory, right? What they're thinking is that they have this very materialistic understanding of glory, which is demonic. Right. Satan has this materialistic understanding of knowledge, which is why he's like, just just eat the apple, which is packed full of knowledge. And then you'll have the knowledge, right. too, which is not how knowledge works. Right. That's right. Uh, it's not how glory works. But all of these um, misled French revolutionaries are thinking, well, if we just you know sack the aristocratic manner and behead the monarch, we can liquidate all of their all of their glory and we can redistribute it among all of us. 
But but the problem is, is that if you no longer have an aristocracy, if you no longer have ladies and gentlemen, you can't tell anybody to act like a lady or a gentleman. Okay. Okay. This brings me to another and I actually really, I can't get away from it these days. Yeah. So one of the things, so the implication there, it's really interesting, Josh. The implication is on some level, um, is that way of thinking that, that a piece day, that, that knowledge, that way of thinking that you just described this enlightened yeah. materialistic way of thinking actually is evil. Not because the people who thought it up are evil because it can't lead to beatification or wonder. It must lead to something like, I don't know, diabolos and and disintegration. So right. I, I put words in your mouth, but but watch this. That's a fair summary. That's a good summary. Okay. All right. But now watch this. And this is what I want you to help me with. Hmm. I, I think you come back and we'll do a whole talk on this. I find that that fact, that reality holds for the word or the philosophy or the 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 reality that has we call evolution. As a theory, I do not think. You can go to bed at night, lay your head down. Evolution is true and end in anything but ugliness, deprivation, disintegration. And if everyone lays their head down believing evolution is good and true, we're effed, super effed. What do you think about that? We're so Uh, effed. I'm going to say the word. That's how effed we are. That's what I think. Yeah, I don't I don't think that anybody actually lives like an evolutionist. I I think it's a it's a theory that can pacify certain um moral conundrums, that, unpleasant moral conundrums that you find yourself in. Uh but I'm I'm in complete agreement. I I don't find that a man can live his life in a in a way which is consistent with the materialist evolutionary theory and find life to be meaningful, beautiful. Um, They cannot find life a thing which is worth sacrificing for something which is greater than life. Uh, And that's that final point is kind of the sticking point that if life has meaning, there has to be something beyond this life. Um, That which makes life possible cannot be that which gives life meaning. Meaning always has to come from beyond wherever you are, whatever you are. Meaning is this union of subject and object. And if there's only object, then there's no meaning. If the object is not connected to something higher and more transcendent, then there is no meaning. Because when we talk about meaning, well, there's like the very concept of meaning. There's, there's, there's power, but, but it's this purely coercive materialistic power. There's no real authority, right? If there's only material, if there's only object and there's no subject, then there's no such thing as authority. And all power is ultimately arbitrarily seized. No power is right for this person to have, right? It's just, it's this mad cash grab. It's like however much you can pile up into a lump uh, during the the eight decades that you have on, on planet Earth. Let me take a quick break. I'm going to swipe it here. Swipe it and just say to you guys as we go away into this ad, let's come back. There's more to say on evolution, which gets me in trouble, but let's do it. So... We'll be right back in a second. <laughs> this is John exhorting you to head on down to Key West, to Pines and Palms Resort, a magical place where you can taste the wind and listen to the stars. Nestled deep in the Florida Keys, Pines and Palms Resort is a dream 
come to life. Dancing with the fish, wading in the Emerald Sea, all of this location, and I was just there, trust me, all of the things happening at Pines and Palms, boating, fishing, the oceanfront cottages, all of it, it puts you in a place of comfort. Deep, profound peace. Check out Pines and Palms Resort of Isla Morada. That's right. You can find it there at www.pinesandpalms.com. Check them out. Reserve your room. And listen carefully, because soon I'll be talking about Pines and Palms as a destination for one of our very cool First Things Foundation activities in 2023. Pines and Palms, a resort of Key West. Just keep going with me for a second. Yep. I don't know many... I've seen Pajot wrestle on, on the interwebs with the idea of evolution. His idea is sort of to dismiss it and say, fine, I believe in it to the extent that it it matters. Um, very few people in this subculture that's something like something like the classical world or orthodoxy or something on the interwebs, very few people within this subculture, within this environment, are just going to go, evolution's a joke. And and I think it has to do with the fact that it's it is the principle almost. It is the enlightenment for me. What the what what evolution is? It's the final emergence of the origin story of the atheist. It now this is a story that was being told way back in before the French Revolution. Sure, Thomas Paine I think is telling the story without actually using the vocab. Yeah, and then eventually the story. You know, Darwin actually lays it out. But what's happening is, is people are already living according to it. That's why it's, it's that's why it's received so so marvelously. You know, yeah. it only it only takes a hit from a few like old fashioned Lutherans, and then pretty soon it's integrated, right? Because people are already in this linear dialectical mode where everything is. And I'm not saying it, that that's wrong, but what I'm saying is, is it, it the ripe? The mind was ripe, and here's what I want to say: it better yeah. get unripe. It better stop embracing this idea because the idea at its core is that I am not a value except in so far as I create power on this earth right? and I pass on seed. And I don't care what anybody says. I don't care about all these new evolution. This is my favorite kind of new evolutionist, Josh. Well, you know, we're finding that the ancient societies, the earliest forms of human had to live together and share for what purpose? So that they could survive and gain the, the resources they needed to have the power to pass on their seed. It's the same. I, okay, great. They shared in order to have the power in order to make meaning of their life. And they would hit you in the head if they needed to. And that would still be a value that we should hold on to. Hit the right person in the head at the right time. That can't be a bad thing. So here's what I'm saying. Should I hate evolution this much? Should I calm down? Am I identifying um, something worth? It's sort of like. I would should, we shouldn't like Mao so much or Stalin. Right. I feel that way about evolution. Should I calm down? Yeah. Um, well, as a great lover of, uh, you know, classical Christianity, I'm going to say you should remember the adage to love the sinner and hate the sin. I think that there's a lot of really uh, profound thinkers who have been suckered by evolution. And so to me, evolution's not, it's not the greatest litmus test. There are people who who I think are are quite brilliant that I think have unfortunately got 
Um, I like that word, suckered, maybe. Yeah, yeah they got suckered by evolution. And and as as somebody who's looked into evolution just a bit, there are, I mean, there are certain aspects, there are certain moments in um, a Christian's presentation of evolution where they're describing evolution as a certain sort of mechanical logic to how things work. And I think, eh, okay, I can kind of oh, see a few right. things that you're saying here. I like, I, I'm not saying none of this, like all of this is absolutely absurd, but I don't, I, I mean, at the end of the day, I think that evolution does what you just suggested, which evolution is this kind of scientific spin to put on the wild conjectures about the so-called state of nature, which becomes the new hypothetical playing field upon which enlightened philosophers want to understand human nature. Yeah, and that's this in total inversion of what uh, Jews, Christians and Muslims have always understood about human history. Uh, Jews, Christians, and Muslims have all understood that if you go back to the beginning of human history, you find something that is absolutely splendid and glorious. That's right. You find men and gods walking hand in hand. Right. And it's actually a lot devolution. Of, de we're actually devolving. We're not evolving right. in that sense. Yeah. Well, in that sense, but there's also pagans that you're going to find that are going to say the same thing. Um, there's not this uh, this narrative that originally um human life was nasty brutal and short and that because of knowledge because of the uh, the slow uh, accruing of knowledge we have made our lives better and better and better and better so the, the enlightenment perspective on history is the exact inversion of every religious history of mankind yeah, which is that a very long time ago things were great and we screwed it up and we've been trying to get back to this original state of grandeur that we once had right uh, like the christian story that, that adam is the ultimate king and the ultimate priest and he betrays his kingdom and he betrays his uh, parish and he's kicked out of his kingdom. He's kicked out of his church. And that we have been slowly trying to get back to this kind of sublime priesthood and, and dominion of Adam. Um, the Enlightenment says it's the other way around, that originally it was all darkness. And because we have added more and more knowledge year after year after year, we have moved into these higher states. And so life is you know human history is one of continual progression yeah um i i don't i i don't think that human history has been uh, obviously i don't think it's been nothing but progression i don't think it's been nothing but regression um in terms of and this is this is such a big subject it's hard to to right. speak of I'm it um in terms of like has life gotten better or worse in the last 7000 years um after we're kicked out of the garden, I become a bit of an agnostic in, in giving any kind of declaration about whether life is completely better or completely worse or getting better or getting worse than it used to be. I mean, there are, there are certainly periods in history that it is terrifying to imagine living in. But given the shape of the modern world, some of the time periods that we are terrified to live in would be terrified to live in our time period. Right. Yeah. Like we look back on certain eras of human history and we we try to imagine like living on a, you know, living on a subsistence farm in the year 900. Uh, and, you know, so many of my students are like, it's just yeah. terrible. I Awful. Do that. They're eating mud. <laughs> right. And life is just very violent all the time. And there's no such thing as consensual sex for like thousands of years until finally <laughs> we invent consensual sex back in like 1968 and now everything's right. much better um 
But I, I think that if you were to, I mean, if you were to take somebody in the year 900 and, you know, airdrop them into our era, there's probably some things that they would be delighted by. But I tend to think that they would run shrieking in terror of, of the, the possibility of living in our era. Um, because a lot of the, because ours is kind of this um, spiritually vapid era where everything seems so pointless and that, it, you know, they wouldn't find that, that all that attractive. Yeah, go ahead. A really quick story. My best, best, best friend in um, Mali during my years in Peace Corps, I did two and a half years. At this point, this is the early 90s in Mali. There's There was no running water, no electricity. That's just, that was the state of infrastructure. There, it, there was no, there was no hurricane or anything. It was just, that's the way they rolled. Yeah. And I was down in a little village near Guinea and Bakari, I was probably 25. He was 40. He took me in. Just magnificent human yeah. being. Took me in. Never learned to read. I don't think he went to school for a day. He had lost his eye in a childhood accident. Uh, he just took care of me. Where I went, he went until I figured it out. Then I went wherever I wanted, and he made sure that I got back safely. Yeah, I just love this guy. He just really took care of me. His family took care of me. At one point, my wife and I went back after my Peace Corps service. And then he came to our house. New York City, the Bronx. Mm -hmm. and you got to realize he, he'd never been out of his village. Forget out of, out of, you know, if he traveled, he went to the capital, but that was it. He shows up. He spends almost because I'm going to work. Right. So I take him to work a couple of times. I'm teaching history at the time. And he loves that. The kids love him. He can't speak anyone's language there. He doesn't even speak French. He speaks Bomber, the local language. But he comes back from work and he sits. And then when he doesn't go with me, he sits in the apartment. And what happens? My wife goes to work. My kids go to school. This dude, all he kept saying to me was, Joe McGon, where does everyone go? <laughs> I'm like, oh. well, we have work. He goes, but what is, you're not going to the fields. Where are you going? So I would explain what a job to him is. And he would be like, so that's how you get the food. Okay, but. But why, are, why don't they go to work together? Don't you miss, like, how do you know where you? oh, my kids are going? And he'd be like this. Is it normal to just sit alone? And I'd be like, yeah, kind of. And so here's what his takeaway was. People here feel lonely. His take, I've got to tell you, he's walking down. He, we take him to the Statue of Liberty. He didn't care less. We took him down to, you know, we took him to the West side and showed him the central park. Like, wow, this is cool. But when do we sit together and take tea? I'm not, mm -hmm. you guys think I'm making this up. I'm mm -hmm. not making this up. So what was happening? He wasn't, now I'm not saying he's from the ninth century. That's not what I'm saying, but kind of, yeah. <laughs> he kind of is living an old world life and he is fundamentally not happy. And he was cold, like physically from, and so when he went home, <laughs> Believe me, he wasn't saying, oh, if only we could export this to West. He wasn't thinking of his, the dirtier water. I'm not saying it was dirty, but it was dirtier at times than the water I was drinking. He didn't care, man. So that's a real life have, experience on some level. Yeah. Have you read um, The Aviator by Vodoloskin? Uh, I, 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 I'm listening to it on um, um, audiobook. Nice. That's how I that's how I did that one. Um, I'm in the middle. Your story reminds me of that book, um, specifically all the times that the doctors that are treating 
the patient whose name I don't remember, think that he's going to be very impressed. I think it's Lir- Lirianov. The- Lir- Lirianov. Yeah. Yes, and he, that's right. I I have no memory from Russian of uh, Russian names, but all of the doctors think that he's going to be super impressed by how the world is now. It's just uh, he doesn't have uh, predictable reactions to any of the technology or the historical events that they think are going to be um uh, deeply moving to him like even when they like he's of course he's he's uh you know frozen like checks out of society shortly after world war one like when they tell him about world war ii they think he's going to be amazed by it but when this when he learns about world war ii i don't know if you've gotten to this point in the book yet Mm-mm. when he hears about world war ii he's like yeah well we did it once i'm sure we're willing to do it again and he's not <laughs> he's not blown away by the knowledge that even more people died in World War II than World War One, and it all happened, you know, within a generation after World War One, um, the things that are always most impressive to him are the things that are just uh, just side issues for 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 people in our era. This um, is it. And this is it. Yeah, this yeah. And, it. and I, I would be willing to bet. Tell me the name of your friend who came to New ba- York. Bakari uh, Abu Bakar is his name, but they, his nickname is Bakari. Okay, I, I'd be willing to bet that when he went back and told his friends about New York City, that he was impressed with a couple things that, that I couldn't possibly guess. No. That like whatever it was that he said nice things about, like would would be you couldn't possibly imagine what it was. That it would be some some tiny I'll tell you trinket what, that he just found delightful for your whatever reason. Is incredible. Your intuition, because I'll tell you what it was. Okay. One of the things he was super psyched about was the blanket. He was like, where'd you get this? I love this? it. I love where it. did you get this? This is uh-huh. so comfortable. And it was like literally just some blanket out of our... <laughs> right. I was like, he was like, wow, That's this is awesome. so nice. And he would like walk around. It was very weird in his bare shirt, bare, yeah. like his bare, bare chested. But then right. like the blanket against him, he loved it. Loved it. Uh-huh. And shoes and shoes. Shoes were everywhere. And shoes uh-huh. aren't everywhere in his village, but you're right. And so, and you're you're expecting him to be impressed by like high tech stuff, and okay. it's just a blanket that. Yeah, totally he didn't even out. watch TV. It wasn't. Yeah, like, and and if you're hearing this as like, oh, the experiment on the African guy, you're dumb because this is my friend, man. Like, like right. I I was there for the birth of his child. Like, I care about this person. Yeah. And he was just not experiencing life in the same way. And guess what? This is not to say that his lifestyle is better. It's to say that the human experience is a constant iteration on the the momentary reality. We can move through almost anything and we can find goodness. And I, I like what you said about the golden moment. The golden moment is finding goodness somewhere just above us in every moment. And then yeah. moving toward it. And that's what everybody has done in history. But that's a kind of a Christian, maybe even a monotheistic. I can attribute that to lots of other uh, religions too. But it's it's a high ideal to be able to say that in time. And I don't know that the evolutionary narrative, I don't think it does very well at that. I just don't think. At finding transcendence, no. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, so we came on to talk about it and and the enlightenment. So here's two new world guys. Before we go, tell me, what would, what do you, what do you like about the, 
the epoch that you've mo- you're living in. Because mm-hmm. I don't, I I asked you before, mm-hmm. I think, but I think we both just sort of went toward historical moments of disdain, right? I, I yeah, I've certainly got a few. <laughs> what do you like? Um, well, you said the, classical the first, music. I love that answer, by the way. Um, uh, well, there's there's some things that um, we find in our era that I'm not entirely sure are going to last forever, and which I think are are nonetheless just quite delightful. Um, I'm really going to expose myself for the shallow person I am in this answer, but I love movies and I don't think movies are going to last forever. I agree, and, but I love them too. I, I love movies. And I, I think movies are, um, this kind of sublime instructive thing, especially going to a theater to watch a movie, like the experience of going to a movie theater and everybody in the room orienting their bodies and sitting in the same position and sitting there and waiting for it to start and watching it and everybody kind of reacting together in fear, delight, uh, laughing, crying, uh, and then leaving the kind of moments of recognition where you're, you're seeing how other people responded to the movie. Like, Oh, this was very touching. Yeah. By the way, that is a nice moment. I like that moment. I love that moment. Um, and I, and I'm, there are so many movies that have been uh, instructive to me on a on a deep moral level. Like I don't think like film is a new thing, but I don't think it's a shallow thing. Mm-hmm. And I, and my life has been made better because of a handful of motion pictures. And and so movies are just a thing I love about modernity. I, I love the reality of movies. I love uh, the aesthetic of movies of movie theaters. And um, I I don't think they're going to last. And and when movies go away, I do genuinely think the world will have lost something That's that was pretty 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 great. Yeah, it's beautiful. I if I could weigh in, yeah, I think some people are saying like, why don't you interview Josh instead of talking? But I like to have a conversation. I'll I like in to with have this. a conversation. Yeah, I like a road trip, and the old world. You could take huh. one, but. It probably wasn't going to be very pleasant. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Might have been on a boat. Yeah, with some pretty violent people <laughs> hanging around. Uh, right. At least in my study of history, you know, there was a reason to go out. It was dangerous. And yeah. I can get in my car right now and drive to L.A. or wherever I want to go. And generally, yeah. it's pretty pleasant. I like yeah. a road trip. Does that sound shallow? I don't know. Oh, no, I don't. I think you're absolutely right. That never occurred to me, though. I think you're right, though, um, that, that when you look at, uh, you know, when you look at the pilgrimage from the Middle Ages, it was this like you're taking your life in your hands if you go on a pilgrimage. Like there's a good chance you're going to get robbed or mugged or killed or um, you're going to get lost. The elements are going to overtake you. I mean, like to to get in your car. I mean, for the last two summers, my whole family has gotten in a car in Richmond, Virginia, and driven to Pullman, Washington. And we have seen every beautiful site in, yeah, you know, yeah. Western America, um, in, the you know, Wyoming, Grand Canyon, um, Yellowstone, Yosemite. Like we've seen all of those things. And like historically speaking, it's relatively easy for us to do this. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're absolutely right. I that's probably not going to be a reality for the indefinite future. Like that will probably for some reason come to an end at some point. I think you might, I think you're, if we're speaking about the same thing, sort of like some kind of postmodern, 
I don't know, degradation, something bad is happening. And I right. agree with you. I think I think we lose both movies and something like road trips. Yeah. And it'll we might be a real gain loss. relationship though. We might gain having to rely on I mean, I'm looking at my neighborhood right now. I don't know half half. I don't know almost anybody in this neighborhood. I mm. might gain their relationship should things get a little testier in the world, you know? True. I might gain their I might gain their loyalty in a relationship that I didn't have. My relationships now are like online and they're with my friends from New York City. I live in South Carolina. That's weird. Yeah. That's very modern too, but. To just move around, to like give up one home in favor of a new home and then give that one up. You mean moving around like that? This is my life. Will you just share with us what you're doing as as we go away? Uh, Tell us about what you write, where you write. I've, I've talked about it. We talked about it in the intro, but give us what you're doing, where we can find you. Um, I teach online at gibbsclassical.com. Um, I'm starting a class in just a couple days called wisdom literature for beginners. Um, that's a 14 week class where we're going to read Ecclesiastes and the consolation of philosophy. Um, I've got a couple books coming out this year. One's called love what lasts. It's an art history, art philosophy book. It's about how we choose what to watch, what to read, what to listen to, yeah. what to, how to dress. It's kind of a big, sort of comprehensive book. Um, uh, I also blog for the Circe Institute. Um, I do a summer conference of my own uh, for classical educators. I'll do another one this summer. Um, yeah, I, I write an awful lot online. I blog at sometimesgibbs.com. Um, that's a, we're gonna, that's a place where I, I just kind of like post links to my favorite things and, and talk about just personal interests. Josh is being, um, he's being humble. Uh, your stuff is beautifully written. So we'll link it. We'll link oh, it you. up. And that conference sounds super interesting. So yeah. let's stay. Well, we're friends now. We met at the restaurant. That's right. We've actually had a drink together and all that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We had such a nice talk that, you know, and I realized kind of the authority of your your voice and and of your pen. So let's stay friends and help us, help me out there talk about first things, but also um, come back, okay? I'd love it. And I won't... I won't ambush you with evolution, my head popping off about evolution. That was weird, but. <laughs> oh, no, man, that's fine. Totally fine. Okay, brother, this was a blessing. And thanks for this coming This is great. On, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation to be on the show. Joshua Gibbs, guys. Loved having you on, Joshua. Thank you for being here. This is First Things Foundation. I have two things I would like to share with you as we head out into the outro. The music playing. Number one, consider a trip with us in 2023. That's right. Our work allows us to take guests and to go and see things. Things like West Africa, East Africa, the Georgian Republic, Guatemala. If you want to go to any of these places, gather up your friends and simply reach out. You can find it on our KP page, the KP Journey page. That's www.first-things.org. We've got a page dedicated to our trips. Don't forget, we're always looking for field workers. Two years of your life. Is it really that long? Or is it really just the beginning of something incredible? Two years of your life, 
giving up for the proper reason. What reason is that? That you may find yourself in service to others. That's First Things Foundation. We do small project developments. We cultivate capacity for local people's best ideas. Love to you all. Thank you, Joshua. Come on back. More good stuff at Wattar. Au revoir. Jusque la prochaine fois.